Hello and welcome back to Big Mama Hex Podcast. I'm so excited to be sitting here recording episode 57. I'm so proud of this body of work. And today I will be speaking with my friend and amazing intellectual historian, Dr. Alexander Ames. He is, as I mentioned, an intellectual historian, material culture scholar, and library and museum professional based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He holds an MA in American material culture and a PhD in history of American civilization and museum studies from the University of Delaware. And he works as a director of outreach and engagement at the Rosenbach. It's a historic house, museum, and special collections library. I'm so excited to have you here, Alex. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I just wanted to start the episode. We always start on Big Mama Hex with how we kind of know each other and how I know about you and how I know about your work. So I actually was able to see you present your work at the Schwenkfelder in August of 2021 um, while I was the educator there. And it was such a phenomenal presentation. And it was very moving for me personally in my own work and really took my exploration of Pennsylvania Dutch and Pennsylvania German um, Fractor pieces of Borskriften uh, to another level. And I just want to thank you for that presentation. It was so well done and so engaging and answered a lot of questions that had been unanswered for me. So that is actually how we met, right? Yes, you're quite right. And um, thank you for uh, always encouraging my research. I was so glad that we had the opportunity to meet that day and uh, to, to start a conversation then about Pennsylvania German material culture and religious history that we have carried on um, really ever since. And it was such a pleasure to be able to provide a few new insights for you to think about in, in your artistic practice based on my scholarly research. Yes, it was, it was such a neat experience. And I, I was sort of kind of very busy that day, but I got a chance to then reflect with Candace about the work that you did and um, also got a chance to get your book and, you know, check out your website and your podcast. And I was just blown away. It was so, it was such a breath of fresh air um, from a pool of very stagnant research that I had been <laughs> absorbing for a really long time to have someone young and vibrant and so, so much a part of our contemporary times be reassessing this work from a very different lens, in my opinion, and uh, taking different things into account. So I really appreciate your work so much. It was a very moving point for me and um, definitely answer some very, very important questions for me. So, and then I had the pleasure of coming on your podcast, which was a lot of fun, which is called Cloister Talk. And we discussed uh, my book, Pennsylvania Dutch Design. It was so wonderful. And I have to say, you are one of the best interviewers. Um, <laughs> the questions were so thoughtful and really, I mean, it was just so nice and very refreshing to have someone be very, very thoughtful about um, what you were asking instead of kind of the run of the mill stuff, you know, kind of pigeonholing me into the artist category and, sure. you know, kind of focusing on that. So I want to tell you that I appreciate that too. And, yeah. and you've, you've also interviewed a couple of really wonderful friends of mine and colleagues. And I really enjoyed those episodes as well. And um, I reached out to Patrick after I heard the episode and I was like, wow, but your questions for him, the same thing, were so wonderful and very thoughtful and things that I think about a lot as far as the culture is concerned. And I really liked that exchange between the two of you. So I highly recommend checking out Cloister Talk. It's an amazing podcast. And also, of course, your book, um, 
and your website has some wonderful resources too. So just everything you do, Alex, I'm a super fan. <laughs> well, thank you, Rachel. And I have to say, you know, it was such a pleasure to have you on Cloister Talk and to um, bring bring the kinds of conversations that we have privately into the, the public audience, because I think there's so much possibility for interdisciplinary innovation in the field of Pennsylvania German studies, and for that matter, you know, any area of artistic and scholarly work. But it's just so wonderful, and as you say, refreshing to think beyond the usual boundaries that we use to frame an artistic practice or a scholarly practice and learn from one another. You know, as, as I have undertaken my scholarly research over the years, I have increasingly come to see research and writing, including nonfiction writing, as a creative artistic practice. And I think similarly, your work is an example of how an artistic practice is also an academic and scholarly endeavor simultaneously. So um, I think that it's good for the field of Pennsylvania German studies to have these kinds of conversations and force us all to think a little bit more broadly about how we conceptualize our projects. Absolutely. That is a phenomenal point. And also, same with my husband, Hunter, and then Patrick Dunmore as well. We're all practicing artists as well as, you know, dabbling with the scholarly work, which is very, very mm -hmm. interesting. And I would absolutely agree that writing is a creative art form. And then, of course, you're a musician as well, which we'll get into it a little bit later. But um, I also wanted to mention something in the interview with Patrick that stuck out to me a bit was mm -hmm. how he talked about how those small little museums and um, historical societies are so, so valuable just as much as the larger collections. And I think, and I kind of stopped and thought about you a little bit with that because I know we've talked in the past about the Schweinfutter kind of being like this hidden gem, but yeah. as well, the, the, the place that you as well provide, um, support the Rosenbach. Am I saying that right? <laughs> we, we, that is the correct German pronunciation. We actually pronounce it Rosenbach because that's how the oh, family okay. ended up sort of. Look at me. <laughs> I surprise myself every day, Alex, but that's sort of a hidden gem as well. I had not heard of it until I had met you. So sort of with that spirit of, you know, everything is sort of level and also important and contributing is as well what you're speaking about with the interdisciplinary sharing and um, collaborations. I love that. The wonderful thing about this region, as you know, by which I mean the, the Mid-Atlantic region, you know, the Philadelphia metropolitan area, um, Pennsylvania, Dutch country, there are so many um, true treasures, you know, um, mm -hmm. in, institutions, museums, and libraries that may be small, maybe mid-sized, maybe large, that you know, institutions that have collections of Pennsylvania German material that many of which have been studied in depth before, many of which haven't been um, reviewed in, in, a, in a long time. And so it really is the historian's dream come true to be able to immerse oneself in the rich collections in this region. And as you are underscoring, oftentimes it is the smaller institutions, the out of the way places where one can find things that need to be showcased in a more public fashion. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a wonderful point, and I loved the way that it was sort of brought together and um, expressed. Um, you speak so eloquently. I just love 
when I say things to you, Alex, I love to hear you sort of like recap because you take this huge like vomit of words and like a total emoting, right? Like, and you just put it together very lovely. So I love speaking with you. It's just really fun to listen to your podcast too. I find it very relaxing, um, but also engaging, but so relaxing. It's just really fun to listen to you speak. I mean, I could just listen all day. Um, the talk was really fun. And, you know, we have a lot of talks that are hard you know, to listen to sometimes they can be quite boring, but it was very, very well done. Um, I would love to see you collaborate with Josh um, Brown as well. He's a wonderful speaker too. I'm not sure if you know Josh Brown, but he would be a great guest too on on the podcast for you. You know, I've never met him. Oh, he is. I just adore this person. He's an amazing man. He's just like such a sweet teddy bear. (laughs) <laughs> well, we fo- I, we follow each other on Instagram and I think have, have commented to one another in the past, how have we not met at some point in the various reading rooms and archives of, of Southeastern Pennsylvania? So yeah, I think I think the next time he's he's out in the area, it would be good for us to meet up. And that's a great idea to have him on the next season of the podcast to talk about some of his scholarly work. And he knows some things too that really unlocked. He did a talk at the Shrink Letter as well about... Um, I forget what the title was, but it unlocked a lot of language things that I was sort of interested in during my research. Um, He's actually going to be at Kutztown again very soon for the the wrapping up of the Mountain Mary show. So maybe it can be coordinated that you could get out there. That would be great for you. That would be amazing. Yeah. Keep keep me informed about that because that would be a nice opportunity for me to visit Kutztown as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll let you know. Um, All right. Well, let's get into it, Alex, because this is sort of like part two of our interview. And I'm really excited to learn more about you. Um, So many things came up during our interview when you were interviewing me that I wanted to know equally as much about you, especially since we sort of had a similar path and how we kind of stumbled upon the research and then ended up becoming our life's work almost, you know. So one of the things that I really like to ask, because, you know, I'm a teacher and, and I have children and I just love, I love children so much. I love their inherent creativity and and exploratory spirit and the curiosity so I would really like to know um what you were like as a child and also um you know how do you feel that the the kind of child that you were kind of influenced your path as far as like what you chose to study and your drive and your your hardworking um style of work (laughs) sorry your work ethic um I I just am curious what you were like as a child because I just I love knowing things like this (laughs) well thank you for asking that question and I can say no one has ever posed that particular question to me in the context of my scholarly work and as you say I think it is deeply important because as objective as we may try to be in academic research and writing of course um it's a very subjective thing, how we end up interested in the things in which we take an interest, how we um, develop as creative, sentient beings out in the world. So um, it's, it's a fun question to consider. I grew up in a small town in sort of um, central Minnesota, verging on the Northwoods. Um, if you drive about an hour north of where I um, lived in a town of 3,000 in rural Minnesota, you're sort of in the characteristic um, forests of, of, of northern Minnesota. And um, my mother was a school teacher who became a curriculum director and school administrator, later a board member at my local um, uh, 
public school district. My father was a social worker who became a, a um, grants administrator uh, for, for my region. And so I grew up in a household um, along with, with my elder brother, Andrew, um, that was very informed by and interested in culture and the arts. It, it was not an affluent upbringing or a particularly um, culturally, you know, in the center of things, just because it was, in fact, a small town um, in, in rural Minnesota. But my, my, my parents, my family were very interested in history and literature, art and culture, especially my mom, who was a, an American history teacher, social studies teacher for the first part of her career. And so I grew up surrounded by books and um, surrounded by people who were you know, interested in American history in particular and the arts. Um, my father was musical, and so I took piano lessons from a young age, um, and you grew in other directions as I aged as a musician. Um, and from, from you know, very early on you know, in, in my childhood, I, I had a deep interest in, in history and literature, particularly American and British history, and read widely, you know, in, in those areas. Um, the interlibrary loan service through my high school's media center was uh, very important in this regard, especially in an era sort of right on the cusp when the inter when internet resources became more fulsome. Um, I, I was requesting a lot of um, academic volumes from various colleges and universities in the region uh, on topics of, of American and European history and really immersed myself in sort of a general course of study in that area, not of course at, at that young age having any clearly pinpointed um, research focus, or for that matter, a sense that I could make a career out of this area. But it was almost a, um, in a way, a form of escapism for me. I had a lovely mm. childhood and I, I, I loved my family and, and my, my hometown very much. It, it was a, very, in, in a way, idyllic, bucolic upbringing, but I always sort of knew, you know, with interests like mine, my life probably wouldn't be confined to um, the rural Midwest. And um, slowly over time, as I got a little bit older, I started to put together the notion that I could make a career in the world of libraries and museums and rare books and special collections. And so, um, you know, it, it, there was no natural pathway to follow um, in that particular career trajectory. But, you know, looking back now, you know, with the you know, value of hindsight, I can see how all of those different interests from my youth were, were stepping stones that eventually led me here to, you know, the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia and this area of research uh, that I began cultivating in graduate school. That's amazing. I love hearing people's stories um, from their childhood because I find a lot of people that I interview, I don't know, I'm just, I get, maybe I'm just drawn to people that are natural learners and just have such a innate curiosity that mm -hmm. it, you can almost follow the line back to when they were children and sort of how they got to where they were. Um, especially because, you know, I feel I'm a hard worker, but I also feel like a lot of this has come so naturally just because 
you know, when you're a natural learner, which I would say probably that sounds like you were because you were just consuming the things that you were interested in, which is how we kind of, um, we use natural learning for our homeschool as well. We homeschool and we don't really follow a curriculum. We do a little bit of like core curriculum, but you know, it's so fun to watch my son with natural learning, just like follow the the instincts and, and the things that he's just drawn to. It's really fun to hear people like yourself discussing what you were like as a child, because I just find that so endearing. And I can just imagine little Alex. And it's just really fun to think about. My grandmother lives a block away from um, where the, the house where I grew up. And um, I, I, when, I was, when I was a little boy, I had this little blue plastic briefcase that I had filled oh. with all the, different, all the different projects that I was working on. You know, my crayons, my markers, my pens, my pencils, my papers. And I would sort of march back and forth between my house and my grandmother's house with that stuff, you know, when I was particularly little. Um, and you know, over time, that, that, you know, those, that little briefcase turned into um, studying topics that now form the focus of my academic interests. And I think you're quite right about you know, allowing child allowing anyone to follow their natural um, instincts in terms of learning because I think you know I often do reflect that those early experiences where I just really went hog wild in terms of all these different areas I was studying the books I was reading the papers I was writing for my various courses um, that built the capacity that I now have to do this kind of work and I think had I not had the luxury an encouragement to do that sort of um, exploration when I was young, I, I'm not sure that I would have developed in quite the same way to, to sort of have the, you know, whatever level of ability I have now to, to do this kind of work efficiently. I mean, it's a, it's a skill that you build over a lifetime. So I'm very grateful yes. that I sort of had that, that moment in my, in my, you know, younger development. Yeah, as you were speaking, I was thinking of slow learning. It just kept flashing in my head. It's just like this, it's such a gift to be given the time and the space to be able to slow learn something that you're so interested in. And I often find with people like ourselves that it does start at a really young age and and kudos to our parents and people in our lives that were able to just let us be and like have that time to explore these interests. Because like you said, I mean, I work really hard, but it's also so, it's so natural for me now because we've been working on these skills for so long. It's really incredible. And I do often worry as I was a former, I'm a former teacher. I do often worry that we're distracting children and young people so much with so much nonsense and teaching the tests and all these things that, um, you know, kind of, fog their ability to have that time and space to find these natural um, curiosities and also just being, you know, really distracted with video games and social media. It's just Mm -hmm. really, it makes me kind of, it kind of breaks my heart, but I do see a lot of parents still, you know, facilitating those interests and which is very, very encouraging and exciting to me. Um, But, you know, places like the Rosenbach and Schweinfelder and these different facilities can also encourage these explorations because a lot of these places have children's programming, which is a wonderful gift to kids. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know much about the Rosenbach, but I do want to come and visit sometime very soon. Um, You must. I, I absolutely would love that. It would be really neat to come into your space and see all of the things that you know, you've been working with and studying. Um, 
But yeah, we are in an incredible place as well. Like our region has so many of these kinds of facilities in different kind of um, levels of ability to explore, I guess you could say as a young person or a child. But I also wanted to mention as well, I always bring up children, of course, because I have children and I'm, and I was a teacher, but at any age, I always tell my kids, especially with homeschooling, there's a part of it where if you've been in school, you have to kind of de-school and kind of untrain your brain to feel like you need permission to study certain things or whatever. And I always say to them, like, look, mom and dad, like, we're interested in this thing and look at how I'm like researching it. Like, there's never an end to it as well. Natural mm-hmm. learning occurs forever. And I know some people get kind of um, cringe when people say, oh, I never stopped learning, but it's really true. I mean, as humans, like you really should never stop learning more about things that you like or things that you just need to be informed about. It's how we evolve and become better, you know, versions of ourselves. But I just love talking about natural learning so much. (laughs) So I could spend all day with that. But I love um, that you also have this musical background as well, because I, I wonder as well, just on a side note, being also very interested in this is the kind of learner you feel like you might be. I'm not sure if you know of Gardner's uh, different hierarchy of learning styles, but um, I know I have come to find out much later in life that I'm definitely like auditory visual learner. But do you think, like, if you had to put yourself in a category, would you say that you're more of a natural learner in reading? Or do you think you like to get more, um, like, information from different kinds of sources to create a larger, um, like, a a wider range of of the observation of the thing you're studying like when you were studying the fractor were you also consuming like different music from that time or you know going to the places where these people lived and you know kind of getting a better picture because I feel like your work has a larger breadth of the whole it encompasses more of the entire picture so I'm just curious when you were doing the work which is actually my next question um I did want to ask how the book project began so maybe you can kind of wrap that into um sure yeah how you kind of observed the information that you used to um help you write the book sure well that's another great question I would say partly because of my own predilections partly because of um just the nature of the academic fields in which I immerse myself. You know, I am a text-based person in some ways. Um, I am, you know, I'm a visual culture, material culture scholar with a good, you know, solid dose of the theories and methods of intellectual history um, that guide my interpretation of material texts. Um, That said, per your point, I think that one of the things that was very important to me in in doing my research for my book, The Word in the Wilderness, was to place individual artifacts, individual Pennsylvania German manuscripts, individual books, individual texts that were created in this Pennsylvania German community and this region, um, place them within a broader lived framework. And this is key to material culture and decorative art studies, which I think is one of the most important strands that we can take from that world into the realm of the study of texts, which is, you know, we cannot treat texts or thoughts or language as removed from the daily lived experience of a region. And so 
you know, my, my book is pretty squarely focused on the, the analysis of manuscripts, printed books, and the texts therein, along with the various sort of, you know, illustrations and other accoutrements that come along with these, with the texts. But I encourage readers, I gesture toward this notion of how would this have been experienced? How would this have been read? Who would have read it? Would it have been read aloud or silently? How does this fit into the broader context of a day in the life of a Mennonite in you know, southeastern Pennsylvania in the late 1700s? So I think that that, you know, partly emerged from the fact that as a, a person doing research in this field, I myself was immersed in the regions where these individuals once lived. And that was very helpful. Uh, I was immersed to a certain extent in the modern day communities of, of, the, of these faith and cultural traditions that continue to preserve these treasures. And I do think that that um, helped in this process. I think if I had stayed in Philadelphia and only done my research, say, using the truly phenomenal collections of the Free Library of Philadelphia Rare Book Department, I could have write, I could have written an entire um, monograph just on, you know, just drawing on the resources at the Rare Book Department of the Free Library. But because I was in the, the towns, the cities, the countryside, where these manuscripts were once made and used, I think it was very helpful in thinking more broadly about the, the lived experience that these individuals may have had, you know, centuries ago. Um, you know, music for me, I, I, I am not a scholar of, um, of music history. I talk a bit in the book about musical manuscripts, but more about sort of the, the materiality and visual appearance thereof, not really the music itself. For me, um, music has become the wonderful counterpoint to my visual world, I guess. I'm a Celtic harpist. That's, as I sort of, you know, as a younger person was um, engaging with various musical instruments, I always felt very drawn toward the, the harp, both the, the, um, the, the music itself and the beauty of, of the instrument, the experience of playing um, that particular instrument. And so, you know, nowadays for me, harp is something that is sort of a contemplative hobby that I pursue alongside my other scholarly endeavors and occasionally enters into my life in other ways, which um, is quite wonderful. So I, I regularly perform harp at church. I've done some concerts and recitals here at the Rosenbach for various events. Um, so I think creativity creates more creativity, which I love. And I increasingly see these all of these different areas um, where I strive to, you know, um, use use my mind, follow my spiritual and intellectual pursuits. I see them all as interconnected, even if those connections are somewhat below the surface. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, Alex. And also it creates a balance inside of you as well. You know, it keeps you kind of balanced to have those different different ways to um I don't know how to say what I want to say. Um different ways in which you can express these these feelings or yes. 
interests, you know, just having a multidisciplinary uh, way to, to express it. You know, as an art teacher, you get to learn all the different kinds of ways to make art. And I really liked that about uh, yeah. the study that I had at Tyler. Um, I really liked learning the different disciplines of art and ways to create because it, it ended up lending itself all the time. I can think when I'm approaching a painting or, or even a hexine, I, you know, I can use carving ways of carving, uh, printmaking. I do all kinds of weird stuff that's interdisciplinary. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't realize that you specialize in Celtic harp because I love Celtic music. I am mostly Welsh and oh my gosh, I, I just recently became a member of a bagpipe and drum band for my oh, son wow. as well. That's very it's exciting. It's fascinating. Oh my gosh, I am like over the moon because I don't know how to explain it. The sound of bagpipes, like they make my whole body scream. Like it's such yes. a, it's such like an ancestral call. I don't know how to explain it. It's so funny. And I'm like a very small percentage Scottish and Irish. So it's like very strange, but it feels so, um, so like primal and ancestral and yeah. that's how I feel about the harp I feel that way about the Absolutely. harp too so it's really it's really wild I can't wait I'll have to try and catch you sometime that would be so fun to see you playing um Absolutely. but yeah I'm maybe so we can do maybe I'm... we can do a duet sometime you on bagpipe and me oh on, me on... <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually play I just listen I'm actually going to be carrying their banner but I'm just like just let me soak it in for as long as I can I've spent mm -hmm. way too many years away from the bagpipes I need to just soak it all in <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but it's such an incredible sound it's just one of those things where it's hard to explain um but coming back to your book the word in the mm -hmm. wilderness i i love that title because yeah. as an artist immediately i see visions like when i hear mm -hmm. the title and your your cover was designed so beautifully the whole book was really designed well i know penn state press does a great job i love their um book that bill donner did with them as well um I'm sure you collaborated with designers and doing the layout and everything, but it's such a beautiful, magnificently designed book. And Thank I just you. wanted to ask you, because I'm so curious, how did you, how did you come to that name? Because it's such, it's so profoundly um, perfect for this work. And, and I immediately was like, this is an incredible title. So I'm very curious about how you came to the title. And also um, in addition to that, in what ways, because I know with my book experience, and we talked about this a bit with the other interview, like the project shifted and changed quite drastically pretty early on in my research. So in mm -hmm. what ways did did the research kind of surprise you and did it take a different turn or was it always kind of like on the same trajectory? But definitely first about the title. I'm very, very interested. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you um, for your, your thoughts on the title. It, I, I cannot point to a single moment when I recall that name popping into my mind, but I'll tell you that my, the, my, the dissertation that I completed at the University of Delaware, um, which really formed the basis for the final book, was titled The Letter and the Spirit. And that was a play wow. on a phrase um, from the theological works of Franca, uh, the leader of German pietism, and I think is a very mm. you know, literal um, statement of this, the fundamental idea of the word in the wilderness, which is that the you know, text ornamentation practices of the Pennsylvania Germans reveal something to us about the way they experienced scripture and other devotional texts as part of their popular piety. Um, mm. 
for, for both practical and poetic reasons, we ended up changing the title as my book project continued to evolve. The practical reason is that the press advised me, and I think that this was a good idea, um, that a change in title from the dissertation would reflect the fact that the book was evolving as well. Yeah. You know, to, to name it, yeah. to give it the same name as the dissertation implies that it is the dissertation when in fact um, the dissertation is, was sort of a foundation for what the book ended up becoming, but the book became something different as, as I continued my research, revised it for a, a wider audience, that sort of thing. So that was a practical reason to change the title. And then, of course, one faces the challenge of what else do you call it? Well, again, I can't point to my thunderbolt moment when um, hmm. the word in the wilderness came to mind, but I think the, what, what I ended up liking about that title is the image it evokes of um, mm. manuscripts and books and um, the, the artifacts that you know, anyone familiar with Pennsylvania Dutch country has seen in various museums mm -hmm. and libraries and archives um, on the periphery of European civilization of the time. Of course, the quote-unquote wilderness of North America was already home to you know, ancient and um, sophisticated, important, diverse civilizations um, of indigenous yeah. peoples. But in the conception of um, the early modern white European settler colonizers who were coming to a place like Pennsylvania, perhaps seeking religious refuge, perhaps seeking economic opportunity, this was a sort of wilderness territory that could be um, used um, as, uh, for, for their benefit. And um, this concept of a tradition, you know, a, a manuscript tradition, a language tradition, a faith tradition being um, expressed in this commonwealth, in this colony, in this region was very um, salient for me. And so I think the, the title really captures this idea of mystery. The other thing, uh, the other way that the title is significant to those who are particularly familiar with um, the scholarship of the history of uh, early American religion, um, the great um, historian of, of Puritanism, Perry Miller, uh, had a book, wrote a book, comprised of several essays, and uh, that, that is considered a classic in the field. The name of that book is Errand into the Wilderness, which itself is a quote from a prominent Puritan leader about the Puritans, Errand into the Wilderness, the idea that Puritans were self-consciously creating a new society in the Americas. And um, right. Perry Miller is well known for taking a very deep, deep, deep dive to Puritan New England culture. His work helped establish Puritan and Pilgrim scholarship as the basis of uh, um, the study of American religion. And so by calling the book The Word in the Wilderness, I'm, I'm trying to stake a claim for the history of religion in the Mid-Atlantic, which is much more heterodox than in New England. Um, you know, staking a claim that 
we need to think about um, the history of religion in Pennsylvania in particular when we are framing the story of American religion, society, and culture in the colonial era through the era of the United Republic. Wow. I love it. That's very cool. Thank you for explaining that because it just was a very striking title and I thought, well done. <laughs> and I know how to work. Sorry. Go ahead, Alex. No, you go ahead. I would love to also follow up on your comment about the cover design of the book. You know, I, I am I am an historian of material texts. So when it comes to publishing endeavors, needless to say, I take a big interest in what the final product actually yes. looks like when it lands in someone's hands. And in this particular field, in the field of Pennsylvania German studies, the aesthetic of the book was very important to me. Because I wanted yes. the book to walk a very fine line of, of speaking to and being in conversation with the larger world of Pennsylvania German material culture, material texts, and decorative arts, but not look physically and visually like most of the other books on this topic. Because most of the yeah. other books on, on the topic of quote-unquote fracture they have a certain similar aesthetic, very much grounded in the um, the study, the close you know, decorative study of these documents. And that's not what my book mm -hmm. is at all. Um, and right. so it was important for me to make clear to, to all readers that this was something, that the word in the wilderness is something a little new and a little different. And so actually, mm -hmm. when I was working with Penn State Press on the cover design, I sent them pictures of the title pages of various early uh, early modern German imprints and early Pennsylvania German imprints, which have this religious books um, that, that have this characteristic use of, of black and red ink in the fracture um, typeface. Um, and namely, I'm thinking of, of various sour Bibles printed here in Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and other and other works too. Um, you know, other theological works, which maybe were printed in Europe, but then found wide readership here in Pennsylvania. And so the cover of the book is modeled on that sort of early modern German religious text aesthetic for title pages, where you have that alternating black and red. Um, yes. And again, I think that this says that my book is doing something different with the source material. It's, it's looking to a different kind of source material that has regularly been applied to the study of Pennsylvania German manuscripts. Yeah, isn't it interesting? And thank you so much for taking that that into consideration because design, design is actually the first thing a person's going to see and the first response they're going to have before they even open the book. Like my husband and I talk, always talk about the cover matters so much, it sells the book. And it's so wonderful to hear you take such care and consideration into the into the design of the cover because it is so important and literally it's holding me up so long just dealing with my cover for my new book it's so funny because it can yeah. be so um a bit definitely intimidating but also when you're when you're a designer or you've consumed a lot of what you're trying to um communicate it can be very tricky to you know settle on one on one final design but I, I love the way it came out it's beautiful 
it's so well done, even typographically. It's just so gorgeous. I mean, I studied extensively in my MFA program, the typography of Black Letter and Fraktor. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's very beautifully designed. So very, 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 very many um, congratulations to you and the designer who worked on it. Um, I also really like the way they designed. Yeah. And Penn State Press, I mean, they deserve so much praise as an academic publisher for taking seriously these issues of design. And I think everyone acknowledged, myself included, um, that my book um, was really striving to reach multiple audiences. Of course, there's an academic audience for this text, but even more important, um, I shouldn't say that, just as important for me is is the, the possibility of my books finding its way into uh, the hands of, of, you know, public general public readership in in the region people who are interested in the topic and the book was priced appropriately to reach that audience that the visual aesthetic makes it seem approachable and comfortable and um, it was a lot of fun to work with to work with the press on this particular project because of the um, public application of, of the content absolutely i love that so much because i know exactly what you mean by the standard sort of format of these publications generally, they feel so much more like oh, overwhelming and the price is always overwhelming and the size is overwhelming and it can mm-hmm. be very intimidating. I love that, that it's accessible. And also as well, just having seen you speak about the book, um, the even down to your slides, they were just designed very well. I just loved the whole experience and I just want to thank you for taking time because these things matter and it is, mm-hmm. um, it just, it does, leave such a different impression people that are absorbing it especially people that are not familiar with it when things are designed well so I really appreciate that and I wanted to make sure to tell you that and Penn State Press definitely many many thanks to them and they did a great job also with Bill Donner's book um, they have some great designers working there so I really appreciate them as well um, so I'd like to kind of pivot and talk a little bit about Cloister Talk because it is something sure. that I very, very much enjoy. As an auditory learner, I really um, leaned into your podcast when, after I had met you. And uh, as well, when I was reading the book, it was really nice to have that as a compliment to the book. Sure. Um, so I kind of want to ask you, how was Cloister Talk born? And as well, how did you come up with the title? Of course, I'm very interested. Um, I have to also mention, Alex, your intros are so epic. The new intro, like, <laughs> I'm like, excuse me, you killed it. It is so amazing. I'm like, okay, you totally got me right there immediately with that intro. I'm done. And your other intro, though, was awesome, too. Um, I'm just like, well done, Alex. Like, just crossing all of the T's and dotting all the I's. Because that new <laughs> intro, I was like, Okay, I'm dead. This is amazing. So go, well, please. Th- All the things you. Cloister Talk. <laughs> so basically, and I, I kid you not, with Cloister Talk, as I was conceptualizing the project, I thought the podcast project. I thought if I were to do the dorkiest thing in the world, what would it be? <laughs> and and what I came up with was I'm going to have a podcast about Pennsylvania German books and manuscripts, and I'm going to call it Cloister Talk after after the cloister. And it's going to be a talk show Amazing. about Pennsylvania German material text, um, and so and that's really you know what it what it has become. Um, the the on a more serious note, the podcast um, was born uh, one you know rainy fall evening uh, at a coffee shop in Philadelphia where I was meeting up with a 
friends and colleague of mine, um, a contractor, a design contractor, as it were, who works um, with the Rosenbach on various projects. And um, she and I met up for coffee to talk about the, the pending publication of my book. I was interested in, in engaging her um, to do some work with me on um, my, my website development and sort of thinking about what else I could do to um, sort of promote my book to a wider audience. And what ended up happening was, you know, we, you know, I, I made a comment to her that, you know, as delighted as I was to have this opportunity to publish a, a book with a very distinguished academic press, and I, I had full confidence that Penn State Press would strive to reach a wide audience with the publication, I, I, I made a comment to my colleague that, you know, the, the struggle is really how do you make academic content accessible to a wider audience, not just in terms of the language one chooses to use and that sort of thing, but you know, actually how do you get content out into the world so that people can yeah. enjoy it? And she made an offhanded comment of, well, you, you know, why don't you do a podcast? And mm. I'll, I, I will admit to you, I had never, I, I was not a podcast listener um, mm. on a regular basis. I didn't have a favorite podcast. I'm not particularly tech savvy. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm a working professional in this era, so I, I have basic skills, but I, you know, it's not, it has never been a hobby or passion of mine. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that actually makes a world of sense. There's, a, I have enough material that I had to cut out of the final book um, that I could do episodes based on content that didn't end up in the book. I could do a few episodes that sort of give a broad-based summary um, I could round out the story that I tell and you know, add my voice into the, um, the, the realm here. You know, as, as you said, sort of domains of learning. People will, can read the book, listen to me talk about it. It'll be great. And I, I viewed all of this as a complement to the more traditional you know, book lectures, going around to various places and giving talks, that sort of thing. Well, this conversation happened in fall of 2019 and the book was scheduled to be released in late spring early summer of 2020 and we all know what happened you know the world changed mm. in a way that we never could have imagined i had already started planning on doing the podcast as a sideshow essentially for the rest of my promotion efforts but then of course what right. ended up happening was with with the pandemic shutdown um there were no in-person book talks there were no in-person book launch parties. There were no in-person tours or visiting bookshops that I could easily do. Mm. And so the podcast ended up becoming the key vehicle I had to engage directly and in a very sort of one-on-one -on -one intimate way with possible readers of the book. And so my first season of the podcast, I think had seven episodes, if I recall, six or seven episodes. And um, I really... I thought that that would be it. I thought that I would do those episodes and then they would they would stand as a sort of little compliment that would always be available on the internet uh, and people right. could find them and engage with them. Well, of course, what ended up happening was the podcast took on a bit of a life of its own. And um, 
you know, I, I continue to do episodes, new seasons based on um, content, other research that I had done, content that I could turn into podcast episodes, and then moved into the territory of doing interviews with other curators, librarians, historians, um, artists, such as yourself, um, who could help me tell a bigger story about the field of Pennsylvania German studies, and even even a little bit beyond just the realm of Pennsylvania German studies, uh, the world of libraries, museums, rare books, and special collections. And yeah. um, the, the, the podcast now has four seasons. We I just released fourth season, and um, it is a an important complement to the book. I wouldn't I would still frame it as a handmaiden to the actual book itself. Um, you know, the, right. the book needed to come first. The book is the center piece of the whole scholarly project. It will be the, the, the lasting, you know, um, statement of my, of my research, my findings and my interpretations. But the podcast really allowed me to flesh out the story. And I would encourage all of the listeners to this podcast episode uh, if you're interested, go to wildenwilderness.com slash cloister talk or uh, find the podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, any other of the of the main Spotify, any of the other main uh, podcast streaming services and check it out. Um, it has, as Rachel has said, it has musical components, um, interesting mm. interviews. I'm able to cover content that didn't end up in the word in the wilderness. And it's been a lot of fun, you know, during the pandemic, yeah. you know, when I was, I live alone. So I was, you know, very isolated as, as most of us were and recording these podcast episodes and then releasing them to the wider world became for me, this incredibly meaningful way to, to communicate with our broader yes. community of, of students and, and scholars interested in this content and to feel like I'm having you know, meaningful one-on-one -on -one conversations. Because I, I just love the thought that, you know, someone who I maybe have never met, who I probably never will meet, you know, hundreds of miles away, is sitting down with a cup of tea, um, listening to my thoughts on this topic, having their own thoughts on the topic. Um, and that's a, that's a very um, meaningful kind of human interaction that is only possible because of this medium. And there's something special about the fact that it's oral, that it's, that it's spoken word as compared to yes. printed word. Um, so it's, it's proven to be a very meaningful um, part of this whole scholarly work and a very meaningful part of my life. Well, that's so wonderful. Well, I love it so much and I'm so glad you decided to do it and your friend gave you that sort of idea. It just mm -hmm. takes a little spark, right? Just a little that's, spark. That, that's um, right. It's very true. And I actually <laughs> recorded for the first three seasons, the music that you hear at the beginning of the end is actually um, me on harp. I recorded a, a Mennonite hymn, um, that a well-known Mennonite hymn, uh, as my intro and outro music. And then when I when I debuted the, the next season, the fourth season, recently, that, that just came out right before Christmas of... 2022. Um, I just, I, for some reason, I felt like I wanted a change. And so I, I had, uh, I, I redesigned the cover art. So it's much more, um, one person described it as sort of goth cloister talk. It has a much 
moodier vibe where somehow I felt like I just wanted to go in that direction. And then I thought, well, now I need new music as well to sort of fit that same thing. So I chose um, a selection from the St. Matthew Passion by Johann Sebastian Bach, um, which and I, I, of course, needed uh, an historical link to justify the switch. Well, the, um, the, the St. Matthew Passion was first performed in America by the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And so I thought, okay, there's my connection that I was looking for to, to sort of justify the use of this music. And so it, it definitely lends a different uh, vibe to the, to the episodes. And it's, you know, again, it's a little quirky, it's fun, it's, um, it makes for easy listening. It's so much fun. I love it. And I was shocked. Like, I was very surprised in a great way. I was like, wait a second, Alex. I had, a I had to strap myself in. I was like, wow, that was unexpected. But it set a mood that was, it was very, it was very well done. So nicely done. Um, I just love the way you spoke about the beginning of the podcast as well. And just thinking of the nerdiest way to like approach this. And I just love you embracing that because I feel like, you know, I just, I love being alive in this time because it's yeah. so different than when I was growing up. I feel like everybody's kind of embracing their own path and not, it's true. and also it's the benefit of being an adult and not having to be, you know, stuck in a high school somewhere, but it's also yeah. really like wonderful to embrace that. And, and, you know, how many young people are going to see you and look up to you and say, you know, like, it's okay that I'm super into this because this is really radical and like. I just love it so much. So of course, um, we're coming to an end of our time together. This has been so much fun, Alex. I did want to end with a final question for you mm -hmm. about, um, there's many more things I wanted to ask you, but I did want to end with, um, speaking of young people and engaging people in and, and, and accessibility, like you mentioned, your book is much more accessible mm -hmm. to the general public interested in this. What are your three top three recommendations for folks starting out in a similar exploration, which I just want to pause for one second and say this, this body of work that you've been working on, um, you have spent over 10 years, I believe, right? Correct. That you've been yes. immersed in this, in this um, mm -hmm. exploration. We didn't even get to touch on the time kind of previous to the book, but um, you have spent a very long time working in this field and spent time at, at many different cultural museums and um, in the field throughout our sort of region. Mm -hmm. But I did just want to ask you, you know, I don't know how many young people get into the Rosenbach, but um, that is something really important to me to continue the, the, the revival or, or the excitement in cultural studies and heritage um, just kind of what are your top three recommendations for people starting out, whether they're young or older people, just not feeling inhibited or intimidated? Like, what would you recommend? Top three things to do or places to go, where sure. to start? Sure. Well, I'll frame you know, your, your question as for, for anyone out there who is you know, maybe on the verge of you know, choosing a, a topic for a research paper or a master's thesis or even a dissertation, or if you're um, an avocational scholar, you're thinking about, you know, how, should I take the leap into a, a research topic and how would I go about doing that? What are, what are the steps to doing so? And I'm happy to, to share a few, a few tips in this regard. My first tip is um, think more about the questions that are coming into your mind than the answers. 
mm. that you're hoping to find and allow questions to drive your area of inquiry. Um, one of my history professors at the University of Delaware made this point in a, in a seminar once that it has always stuck with me that our, our projects take the shape they do because of the questions that we ask, not, not what we find in the archive necessarily. It's, it's about how we shape our, our research experience um, at the very beginning. And so, you know, I'll, I, I would encourage you to think about, you know, what am I most curious actually to know? What answers do I want? You know, for me, it was, why were these German speakers in early Pennsylvania so focused on making handwritten documents in an era when um, you know, print publication was well established and they you know, had a lot of other things to do with their lives and yet they still were very focused on manuscript production. Um, and that question is what drove this entire project. So focus on the questions that you, that you have. Um, secondly, Think as you as you construct a project, as you think about where you want your research to go, it can be very helpful to, from a very early stage in the research process, be in, fully engaged with the community of scholars and librarians and archivists and curators and others mm. who can help you on your journey. That's one of the great things about, especially the world of Pennsylvania German studies. It's a rich community of scholars. There are, there are many people uh, at, at these institutions who are enthusiastic and would love to help you. And I think you know, the, the relational quality of the research process merits further attention. That you know, simply asking someone for 20 minutes to talk about your interests and what collections they may know of that can help guide you. You're going to save yourself a lot of time and you're going to start building a network of people who can help facilitate your work. Um, so, so I would highly recommend um, focusing on you know, building those relationships um, and really thinking about um, asking the, the right questions of the right people to help you on your journey you know, in a respectful way, knowing that people are busy, especially those of us who work at small nonprofits, um, you know, our schedules are busy. But if, if you can say, you know, I, I would love 20 minutes, half an hour of your time to learn about your collections as I explore this question that I'm, that I'm interested in researching. My final tip is, and this, this might seem a little contradictory to the points that I was just making, but I think it's important to bear in mind, you know, for a scholar, and a researcher who is interested in you know, empirical data to support their, their research, their claims, their, the, the narrative they want to write. Be very pragmatic in thinking about what collections do I actually have access mm. to that are going to be able to support my work. You know, sometimes, I, th I think especially those individuals in, in, like myself, you know, in graduate people who go through graduate programs, we're, we're very tempted to, to, be, to live in a world of ideas and concepts. Yeah. And then it can be hard to pin those down in the real world in terms of where do I actually go to research this. Um, if you're yeah. looking for a research topic, if you're looking for something to explore, then I recommend um, you might want to contact someone at your local historical society or a place like the Schwenkfelder Library, the Mennonite Heritage Center, 
other other similar institutions and say, you know, I'm really interested in, let's just say, um, the history of women's everyday life in the, in the 19th century in this county. What collections do you have that could help me explore this area? And perhaps an even better question to ask is, you know, so-and-so curator or librarian or archivist, I need to write a research paper. I'm really interested in, you know, questions around um, the, the, the development of the religious culture of the area. Are there any collections that you feel have been understudied and underexplored? Yes that you yeah. think would be a great project for someone to research. And I can guarantee you just about every <laughs> employee who works with collections at these kinds of institutions will say, well, I actually have been really hoping that someone would come along and want to do some yes. digging into X, Y, or Z collection. And then you're going to end up with a topic that is unique Absolutely. based on materials people haven't seen in a while um, and a really great innovative piece of work. And so those would be my tips. Um, be bold, be tenacious, follow your star. And if you're interested in, in doing research and, and doing, doing writing, um, know that the process is a joy, if you let it be a joy. But you have to decide that it's going to be a joy for you. And when you make that decision, I'm going to have fun, I'm going to write, I'm going to learn, I'm going to share my findings with the world somehow. Then you're off to the races with a really exciting way to contribute to society and also use your free time oh that's beautiful so well said thank you so much alex that's so beautiful that's very true and then it's not even work it's just joy right correct it's, it's it can, <laughs> yeah, it can become your calling it can become your absolutely calling. such great such great recommendations thank you so much and when you said the thing about asking someone what what they think it's so true because candace said to me oh my gosh, this is such a great idea when I brought my research to her. And it was her support that really gave me um, so much um, confidence and spirit to continue. So it's very, very yeah. true. So I, I'm very grateful for your thoughts on that. That's wonderful um, advice. And it's just been so wonderful to sit down and chat with you. And I'll make sure to link all of your links in, in the show notes. And are you doing any upcoming events that we can catch you at? Or should we just stay tuned on your website? Keep an eye on my website, wordandwilderness.com slash events for any upcoming in-person experiences. But you know, the, I would say the most important thing or the best avenue for anyone out there who's interested in learning more about my work, check out the podcast, get a copy of the book from your favorite local bookseller or library, and um, I'll look forward to hearing from you about what you think. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Alex and Max Gut. Thank you, Rachel. It's such a pleasure to have joined you today. Thank you for your friendship, and I'm sure that we're going to be in touch soon. Oh, absolutely. Forever friends, my friend. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. You as well. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye. Hey, hey, that was an amazing episode. Thanks again to Alex. You can check out his work. All the links will be in the show notes. Give him a follow. Check out his book. Go buy it, and definitely check out the podcast as well. I just wanted to let everybody know that you can now follow and listen on BigMamaHex.com. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram at BigMamaHex. Have a wonderful day. Moxie.